Okay. Um, welcome, everyone. This is the Bonsai Wire podcast. I'm Eric Schrader, and I am here with Andrew Robson and Jonas Dupuis. And we're here tonight to talk about the Pacific Bonsai Expo, which was held just a few days ago here in Oakland, California. So, so Jonas and Eric, after running this crazy event, um, how are you doing? Are you, uh, did you get to sleep at all since then, or are you still full-time expo? Do you want the truth, or do you want the positive answer that creates more feel-good vibes? Uh, give us a little <laughs> bit of both. <laughs> Well, then we'll say a little bit of both. Uh, Eric and I have been just as busy in the week since the show as we were almost as bad as the week leading up to it. Wrapping up loose ends, trying to make updates on the website, tracking down images and videos. The difference is we have big smiles on our faces now instead of uh, furrowed brows. Yeah, I I was trying to pack pack and ship out orders on on Monday for Bonsify orders and it was about two o'clock in the afternoon and I texted the, the guy who usually picks up the packages and I said, can you just come pick these up now? And he shows up and then I went and like laid down and ended up falling asleep from like two o'clock in the afternoon, basically until like six o'clock the next morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, it was a crazy weekend. Um, I don't know about you both. I imagine it's the same as what I'm about to say, but I feel like it happened so fast. Um, I, I didn't even get to get any real photos or videos of it. I had to beg my students for it because I was just running around putting out my own little fires the whole weekend and uh, having a lot of fun looking at the exhibit. But it went by fast for all that planning. It did, and that makes three of us who don't have photos from the event. I I can't. I literally. It's more than three of us, Jonas, because I actually had Sam Tan stop by this afternoon. He was returning an accent plant that I loaned to him. And he's and I said, did you get any photos of the event? He's like, you know, I was really just in the moment. And I took a few photos of my own exhibits. <laughs> but then I was just like so blown away by the whole thing that I didn't photograph the rest of the show. And I was like, you and me both. I I took photos of my special exhibit, but I did not even take photos of my my regular numbered exhibits in the in the building. Yeah. Well, I think I think part of what was so crazy about this show compared to other ones is that. You know, if you go to the national show and and you look at the exhibit after like 1 p.m., it's like there's not a lot of people in there. And I I was looking at the national show exhibition book, the the last one today, and you see photos of the exhibit and it's just like empty. And I'm like, I I felt like there was not a moment at at the expo where the exhibit was not crammed full of people. And and like at the expo, or excuse me, the national show, we we have a lot of downtime. We can, uh, I don't know, I, I feel like, it's it's more casual but the expo is just non-stop crazy i have a video just like a 15 second video clip that i took apparently right at the end like i didn't remember that i was taking it but i can hear in the background uh the the venue manager t- making an announcement that there's only like 15 minutes until the building is going to close and i'm panning kind of across one of the aisles and there the the aisle is still full like you can't see all the way down the aisle because it's still full of people taking pictures and looking at the trees. And that's at like three forty-five on Sunday. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You just don't, I don't know. We just don't see that at other, you know, us shows that such like, I don't know, successful momentum in the exhibit itself. Um, uh, it, it, it was, it, it was crazy me. energy. 
It was, it was, a, it was a ton of energy. I, you know, in terms of people hanging out in the exhibit hall, I, it really makes me wonder if it was the changing light that made people so interested to go back again and again and again, or if it was the quality of the trees, you know, I mean, like we, I can confidently say that, I mean, I've never been to a national show here in the U.S., which is ridiculous, but I've been to Kokopo exhibits, and obviously we're aspiring to have quality like a Kokopo exhibit, but I have never been to a show in the U.S. that had that consistently high quality in one room. And to be fair, a lot of people at the expo haven't had that experience either. Looking around, not that many people from the West Coast get to go to the national show or a lot of these good regional shows, let alone Japan. And so I think for a lot of people, it was fairly novel to see a show like this in, in the Bay Area. Yeah, I I think it was a tremendously huge success. Like it was... By far, I, you know, I've been to the Arsons Cup. I've been to the national shows, probably probably most of them. I've been to a lot of the ABS shows. I've been to a lot of these other, you know, events. And there was nothing like the, the caliber of trees that we, we saw at the expo. I mean, the Artisans Cup is something that came close. And, and those trees were still very young. And a lot of those trees, um, even some of the same trees that were at the, the cup that showed up here, just had a little bit more patina to them, more development. I don't know. It was, it was, it was really cool. The, the trees felt like we've, we've made progress as a community since, since then. I think the Artisans Cup was definitely a, a really high quality show, but the amount yeah. of time that has passed since then has allowed people to really step it up further from that point. It's, it's, it's really apparent. Yeah. Yeah. That was seven years ago. So that's a, that's a lot of, that's a big chunk of time with, with the momentum that we have as a community. Um, I thought one of the other huge successes of the show was the backdrop. I, I was obsessed with the color of the backdrop and, and how the backdrops work. I know Eric, you put a lot of time in that and that really, really showed those were, those were special. The plum color, um, <laughs> like the, the, the bare deciduous branches against the plum rather than a black, like that just subtle color shift, like just made everything pop. I yeah, so I, I was obsessed with the backdrops. So I just want to share for those for those people that didn't make Jonas Jonas and I discussed this at our at our talk on Sunday, and I definitely uh, talked to a bunch of people about it during the weekend. But it's just kind of a funny story. We started sampling fabrics back in like July or August. I was ordering samples of fabric from all these different companies that had basically told me, yeah, I can ship you 100 yards of this fabric or 100 yards of that fabric. And I was looking for like a stretchy fabric because I really wanted it to be able to just, all the wrinkles to just completely disappear without a lot of work. I mean, we had to iron every one of those tablecloths, but the backdrops, we didn't have to touch them, which was just this unbelievable win. Wow. And uh, so we started getting these fabric samples and some of them would come in wrinkled, some of them were coming like, so we're looking at the different colors, different types of fabric, textures, and those sorts of things. And I got a uh, a sample of fabric that was, I think it was like, you know, enough to put up like two panels worth, like about 16 feet long, double-sided. And I, I sewed it down one side so it would slip like a pillowcase over the top of the wood frame that I, that I had prototyped. And I, and I, <laughs> the, the color of the fabric was called charcoal. And it came in, I was like, oh, it's a little bit blue, but it still looks pretty good. So then I, I sewed it and I said, Jonas, just why don't you come over? We'll set, we'll test set this up on my sidewalk next to my house. And, uh, and so we set it up and I pull out the fabric and Jonas is like, wait, 
is that the fabric? He's like, yeah, it looks great, right? He's like, yeah, it looks great, but it's purple. <laughs> I was like, wait, no, 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 you don't understand. I like, what are you talking about? Purple? Oh my god, it's like a little bit blue. And you know, for everybody who's listening who doesn't know my perspective on things, purple is not a real color. And you know, because I have a <laughs> a, a slight difference in the way that I see color for most people. So it, it was amazing. Like the Ryan's uh, elm with the yellow oh, leaves man. against it looked freaking phenomenal. Um, I thought the winter berries or the berries on my winter berry looked really good against it. But just like uh, uh, the anonymous ginkgo that was in the show, just the bare white branches of that tree against the backdrop, like it just, it really shined. It was, it was special. Yeah, yeah. that was one of our top happy accidents was that, uh, that fabric. It gave us the seamless look we wanted. It changed along with the light throughout the day and offered, like you can see in people's photographs, the very- that was amazing large number of uh, different colors it turned throughout the course of the day. Did you, did you expect the light to change that drastically on, on the trees? When, we when knew it would change, but at least as far as I'm concerned, I had no idea that it would get as stunningly beautiful as it did at the early and late hours of the day. And I also didn't know how, like we thought about it, but I didn't know how attractive it would be to see the shadows of the windows across the trees. I thought that was really cool throughout the day. Yeah, yeah, it was, I don't know. It was, it was a really special exhibit. Like that was, I have to that say, was the, the moment that really struck me, the, the moment that like really got me excited because we couldn't, we had talked about it multiple times about trying to test set the backdrops up, but we couldn't find anywhere out of the wind, essentially out of potential wind to set up a 70 foot long sail. Uh, and so we hadn't actually seen those backdrops go up prior to when they went up on Thursday and wow. Jonas and I just looked at each other on Thursday when the backdrops actually went up and we were like, Oh my God, this looks fantastic. Yeah. That'll work. That'll work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was completely insane. Like it was, it was awesome. That, you know, that it was, was awesome. Special. Speaking of those backdrops going up is we were, I don't even know what the word is. We were so impressed by the quality and quantity of the work that the volunteers did creating all of that. Cause while Eric yeah. and I did do a lot of coordination and a lot, a lot of it with you too, when it came time to set up the backdrops, we did not have a whole lot to do with it. Eric had put in place a team for that. And we just watched from across the room while the whole thing took shape. And it was just awesome to behold. Yeah. I think it was like, I think Jay and I had done two or three days worth of carpentry to get all the wood prepped. But then on Thursday, the volunteer crew was just amazing. Like it just all went together without pretty much like teeny hiccups. That was it. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. One of the things I really also noticed about this show um, is that it, it felt like everybody was playing a role. Like it felt like there was, it was a community effort. Like I know you guys did tremendous work to put it together, but it, it like the volunteers had this kind of ownership of it, that this was their expo too. And the, the exhibitors felt that way. And I think the vendors did. And like every, this whole big community momentum to, to make it happen was, I don't know, it, it, you could feel it in the room, I think. It it felt like that for us too. There was kind of no core group. I mean, we had almost 200 volunteers from, I don't know, some are 30 or 40 different clubs around the country probably helping out. And so 
the relationship was person to expo as opposed to person and who they study with or where they live or what club they happen to be a member of. It was just everyone pitching in and doing the best they could. And it, it, boy, it, it just felt great to watch it. And the level of excitement with the volunteers was just as high, I think, as it was with everybody else, because I had volunteers who were there all day Thursday setting up and they were like, you know, I'm not scheduled to be here tomorrow, but do you mind if I just like come back (laughs) on Friday and and help you guys with anything you need? I was like, yeah, you know, it's all you, you worked, you worked really hard today and I'm happy to have you back tomorrow. Yeah. That's amazing. I remember at, uh, at somewhere around six 7 o'clock on Sunday after, you know, while we were taking down the show, there were a number of people working really, really hard. And I made a comment to Daisaku about, oh, I should find out that guy's name. I don't know him. And he just turned to me. He's like, what? What are you saying? You mean, you've got someone who's volunteering who you don't even know. They just wanted to help out for some reason. I'm like, oh yeah, there's lots of people like that. And it turns out, you know, the guy in question, Adam from Cleveland had flown out by himself volunteered throughout the weekend and worked like crazy and was a huge help to us. And there were stories like that all weekend long of people who just wanted to be part of this. Robin from Hawaii was another one. He was tirelessly working to set up Thursday, Friday, as well as Sunday during the takedown. And he'd come out from Hawaii and that's what he wanted to do. And he said, that's what I do. Show up and help out. And boy, do we appreciate that help. Yeah, it was it was it was striking to me, like compared to other shows, how much you could feel that in, in the room. Like it, it it felt like this is our our show as a community. It it was really special. I I was like we we only had four hours to break down, and I was like, there is no way we're going to get this done in four hours. We were we were done. so stressed out ahead of we, time. The night we before. were done in like two two and a half two hours. and a half hours out the door. Yeah. I, it was crazy. I was loading the truck to Portland with all the Portland trees. And I came back in after we got loaded because it took us a good two hours to get loaded up. I came back in the room was like empty. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> they, they hustle. They, they got this yeah. down fast. Yeah, yeah volunteers just, did a just great job. Yeah, the volunteers were, were awesome. I know as a as a someone doing a docent tour and, and being a vendor and everything. And anytime I needed help with something, like when I showed up, where does my tree go or anything? Every single volunteer that I spoke to was just incredible. Very helpful. Um, they just wanted to make sure you were taken care of. It was, it was really great. How did your docent tour go? I saw you surrounded by just an enormous sea of people. It was really fun. Um, you know, this is my first docent tour at a big ex- exhibition. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed it um, because Rakuyo is all about deciduous. We kind of took the time to walk around a room and look at the deciduous trees. And that was something that was so um, powerful to me as well as that even though the numbers weren't exactly half and half, I think we had 18 deciduous displays and 30 large conifers. Um, it felt more balanced than any other good show in the U.S. has ever been. Um, and, and so being a deciduous guy walking around it, it was, it just felt like finally, like we, we finally are stepping up with the broadleaf game here and, uh, getting some broadleaf evergreens and deciduous trees, uh, in, in the room. And so that felt special. I think broadleaf evergreens, we still have a lot of work, but no, the docent tour was fun. Uh, we, we went around and looked at a lot of the really, really striking, beautiful deciduous trees and we had a blast. I had maybe 35, 40 people walking around, maybe half were bonsai, you know, hardcore people. And the other half were just people who had shown up. Maybe they've been doing bonsai for six months. And, um, it was, it was a really fun mix. Was the same experience, Eric? 
Well, it's really interesting because I had the same experience, but on a completely different topic, which is, you know, I actually did the first docent tour. I think it was on Saturday around midday and my, you know, starting up at the, at the East end of the building and kind of, I immediately just looked over at the Pacific Bonsai Museum display, Aaron Packard's curation of that, you know, large cut piece of paper with, uh, with a, a, uh, Ryan Neal pot, a Ryan Neal tree in a in a pot by Ron Lang on a custom made Austin Heitzman stand with a custom blown piece of glass under it, and I couldn't go anywhere else. So I started there and then sort of worked down past Michael's display, just kind of talking about all of the unconventional displays that were in the room and how much I appreciated the effort and sort of vision that had gone into those. Uh, and I didn't even get to my own. I like I think we ended on the on that uh, south row where the shoheen and the small and medium trees were, um, just getting to a couple, pointing out a couple of unusual stands, pointing out you know some other things like that, and then you know it had already been like forty five minutes that I had been talking. And I was starting to lose my voice. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, speaking of Michael's display and and uh, talking about the judging a little bit, his the, the a, a very non traditional creative display was uh, ranked second in the large conifer category. And I thought that was super interesting. Um, I mean, he What's, totally deserved it. That, that, that display was insane. It was, uh, and it it was, was beautiful. A, and it was a crowd favorite. You could kind of feel that. But I thought it was fun that the second ranked tree in the category was something totally out of the box. Especially since sticking that in the quote unquote large conifer category is a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, I mean, the tree technically with the ruler is big, but it feels like a small tree. It, that it, was a tricky one. It barely fits into the medium category from a volume perspective. It's just that the the size categories are entirely based on height. Yeah, so th that was fun. It was fun to see some out-of-the-box out stuff. I, I, I thought the origami was super cool that you put together. That was... And the building was... I mean, the venue was so unique, being able to draw your eye up up into the the rafters or whatever you call that um, was, was pretty fun. Yeah. I, I mean, that. there's a, I think I'm going to do like a YouTube episode about the, the origami thing, but just to put in perspective for people, it really came out of, uh, you know, Ofer is his last name Grunwald, I believe yeah. had, we had originally had him signed up to do a centerpiece for the show. And um, he had some family circumstances that, made it so that he couldn't. And I think we talked about that actually on one of the previous episodes of the podcast. And, and so I kind of thought to myself, Hey, it would be really great if we had a, a centerpiece in the room. And then this was actually a display that I had been thinking about. I don't know. Jonas, I think laughed at me because I probably told him about it originally, like something like 10 plus years ago, this idea of kind of riffing on, um, uh, on Naka's quote about birds and negative space, but the fact that one of you know the smallest tree in the room was in that display, and the bird was three times bigger than the tree. So how can you have negative space to allow that bird to fly through that tree? <laughs> it was it was fun. I... And just for basics for people who haven't seen it yet, it was it reached what nineteen feet up from the floor, something like that. This is six hundred origami birds that were about seven inches long, and they stretched out maybe twenty feet across and about twenty feet up. So this was yeah. not a small scale work. Yeah. You could see it from pretty much anywhere in the room. 
and you can you can google murmuration uh if you if you want to see what kind of what we're after in terms of the effect it was cool and you're you're actually selling those as like a fundraiser to uh support the next expo right yep they're listed on the uh they're listed on the expo website 20 bucks including shipping and uh we will send you one they're uh, the the birds that were actually hung in the hall for the exhibit and basically you're making a donation and getting a bird uh, and we're going to use those funds to move forward with uh, with the next expo that's exciting the fact that at the first expo we were already talking about the second expo was was like super super thrilling to me because um i don't know i feel like we need this as a community we need this constant recurring uh show of force with quality bonsai and um you can feel like everybody wants it like they're they're thirsty for for the next expo to happen yeah we got a lot of good feedback from people about what to do differently or how things could have been better and by far the number one request has been do it again do it again yeah that's great so andrew what do you think you know to to flip this like from a semi, I mean, you're not really an outside perspective, but from a from a slightly different perspective, what do you think, you know, the key, if you had to pick like, say, three things that we would have to do again and do them really well, what do you think those three things need to be in order to make people just as excited for an expo in 2024 as they were this year? Three different things or three things that were successful? Well, just what would uh, what are three things of anything that we'd have to do to keep the yeah. buzz like this? You know, I I actually think for the the insane amount of work that it takes to do this, having more time would have been nice. Having like having the show start on Friday and then end on Sunday, I think for me as an exhibitor, like would would have given me like and being a vendor and being chaotic in other ways, but it, I felt like that might've given me an extra day to actually take photos of the displays. I felt like I didn't get enough time in the exhibit to soak everything in that I wanted to, uh, which is why I'm really uh, uh, looking forward to buying the book. Um, but I think, yeah, adding a day, I mean, we, we put so much effort, people, you know, are spending days and days and days and weeks uh, prepping their trees. The, the, the 48 hour thing, I, I don't think is enough. I think adding just a, a third day. I know that's harder on vendors. I know it's it, it's hard for organizers. I know it's more money. But the benefit that you might get is you might get more people from the, the community who maybe don't do bonsai. So it it's, lets you sell more tickets to more people. Um, that That's something that I would like. Um, I also thought the backdrops, I mean, I was in love with the purple. I'm probably too obsessive about the purple, but... Um, I would be real bummed if the purple didn't <laughs> come back to the next <laughs> expo. <laughs> um, I, I freaking love the purple. Um, it, it just really made the trees pop. Um, the fact that you're already just talking about it again, I think is a, a huge success. The fact that people loved it and the fact that uh, it's something to look forward to. I, I heard several exhibitors walking around the room saying, you know, I'm excited to show this at the next one. Um, and so I think people are thinking about it. They're feeling it. They, um, I don't know. Those are just some initial thoughts. I'm sure some more will come to me. So Jonas, what do you think, like, what's your like top three things that you think are most important in terms of the level of excitement that was generated in the community and, and in maybe in yourself, like, what would you, what's the most important to you if we, it, well, I guess, Hopefully, hopefully when, not, hopefully not if we uh, yeah, do another when. one. We'll stick with yeah, when. When, we're going to stick with when. And yeah, those are two different questions. So I'd say 
The number one thing that generated excitement, other than just the fact that there was a big show happening on the West Coast, that was obviously a huge chunk of it, was the venue. And so I think making sure there's a venue people are excited about, whether it's the Bridge Yard again or some other place, we found out that we gained an incredible amount of goodwill just by saying, hey, we're going to go with natural light for this event. Let's see what happens. So I, that's the first thing that comes to mind is some some kind of venue that that builds excitement, I think, is the the number one thing. It did feel like a special place. Like you're driving out in the middle of nowhere. You're in this sole building where there's not a lot of other stuff going on. Um, the building's not like really well marked or anything. So it's not like, oh, big soccer field or, or something like that. Like it's, it, it felt like it was a pop-up art exhibit, which, which I thought was brilliant. It, that venue, it just has some like really weird crossover cachet between like, you're not sure whether you're getting there to like go to a rave or you're getting there to like do some like welding or, or like watch or like see an art show. It's pretty crazy. It's cool. It's rad. I mean, I think, you know, it's surrounded by like shipping containers and like industry and metal and like not a single street tree for like a mile or two. Like bonsai felt really, uh, uh, necessary in that environment like it felt like they they made they made the most sense yeah actually it's, now that you say that it's true you don't usually expect to find the only greenery to be inside the steel and glass building yeah <laughs> it, but it worked i think you know the three of us have talked about this a little bit but that crossover do you think that the part of the success of the show really had to do with the juxtaposition of of an industrial landscape or commercial landscape with with like putting you know kind of a gardening slash nature oriented art show uh, in the middle of it you know whether or not it was that exact aesthetic or not i think old character filled buildings invite curiosity and yeah. i think that's kind of what led people to walk in and look up and just figure out oh I'm not used to being in a sawtooth building or, oh, where is the light coming from? And, oh, is it symmetrical? Is it not symmetrical? And so I think that specific example invited the curiosity that led people to be way more aware of their or conscious of their surroundings than they would otherwise be. Yeah. In some ways, it was like a huge counterpoint. You have like nature, living tree and metal and glass and industry. But in other ways, like the patina of the building, the, the age, the fact that it was weathered, all of that really reflected in the quality trees that, that showed up to be exhibited. Um, so it was nice. It, it was weird. It's, it was like a juxtaposition, but also kind of similar. Um, it's, a, it's a really, I think, relevant discussion because as we move forward into 2023 and 2024, planning a show, um, you know, Jonas and I are, have already had discussions about well the venue was not maybe quite large enough and even though we like the feel of it a lot it doesn't allow for as many people or as many vendors as we'd really like to be able to bring into the show and so looking for uh, maybe a similar venue or an entirely different venue uh, is something that that is you know well it's i guess it's the first big thing that we have to look at it's like so we could yeah. We could yeah. just go back to the same building and just say, okay, it's, you know, there's only going to be 800 people per day in this building. Um, 
or we can look entirely in a different direction. And so having this kind of discussion about like, well, how important was the architecture? How important was the history? How important was the environment to the success of the show? And and which one of those is more important, say, than another uh, as we look at at potentially moving to the different or larger venues? Yeah, it's tough. I think you made people fall in love with it. And so it's, it's going to be a bit of a breakup by changing the venue. Um, I actually, as a vendor and an exhibitor, I liked the intimacy of those spaces being really connected. Um, I liked that I didn't feel separate or a part of it. Um, it, it was nice to, to feel connected to what was going on in the, the exhibit um, with the other vendors and everything. I, I, I enjoyed that, the intimacy of the space, even though would, ideally it'd be nice if it was a little bigger. Would you have felt that lovely, intimate feeling with 15% more visitors in the same space? Or were we near max of what was comfortable? I don't know. Um, it was tight, but it was an energetic congestion. Um, so I, I appreciated the drama. Maybe if we had the third day, like that would maybe space things out a little bit more. But I don't know. I think I think you made a lot of people fall in love with that space, both people who were there and people who weren't there that wish they would or, or would like to, to see that again. And so even though there's pros and cons to, to moving. Um, it's a special venue. It's, it's really nice. It really is. And they treated us great all weekend. And we're super appreciative of all the work that the venue and their staff did to make everyone's um, visit a pleasant one. They, uh, we were actually really happy with the security folks, the parking folks, as well as the venue managers all weekend long. Uh, things just kind of worked and they accommodated a whole lot of people. Yeah, and I think we had a lot of good, um, a lot of good comments in terms of the the shuttle operation from the hotel to the venue. So people who were staying at the quote unquote official hotel didn't even have to get in a car and drive to the venue. They could just hop on the shuttle and go back and forth. And if you wanted to get lunch, you could just hop on the shuttle bus, head straight over to the Emeryville Public Market, and then uh, hop back on it and come back. That uh, that public market was great. Um, staying at the the venue hotel and, and having that experience, you know, doing breakfast with a, a bunch of familiar faces in the mornings and uh, that, that, that food mall or, or whatever the, that, that was really cool. Yeah. I think there's so many bonsai people there that like, we kind of took over the space on Friday night and, uh, and uh, for lunches. It was, it was cool. It, it worked out really well. Other than other venues that I've been at, you know, that, that worked out really well. I have to say, I was planning on being there Friday night, and then I was just so exhausted I had to go home and fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. <laughs> but, uh, I'm, st I'm still that tired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did it. I turned around after I got unloaded, unloaded the truck, worked a half day at home, and then I went on a, a work trip, and I'm, I'm feeling it. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in lovely San Antonio, Texas, speaking with everybody tonight. But, um, no, it, it the show went by super fast. It was so, I don't know, it was brilliant. The 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 quality of the exhibit. I like the program that you guys did. That was that was kind of fun to have too. It was nice that everybody contributed an artist statement, and a lot of people put in a lot of effort into what they said about their the display. So that was fun. We did get a lot of good feedback about the program, particularly from people who are not necessarily bonsai, you know novices but even you know people who kind of 
not wandered in, but people who had never really been to a bonsai show before, just to have that sort of information about the provenance of the tree or information about the inspiration that went into the tree, I think is really important for the understanding of, of the exhibits because there's so much thought that goes into a bonsai exhibit as in into each display. And the, the person who curates that display might have spent hours or weeks and i'm not even talking about the work on the tree i'm just talking about putting together the elements once you have the tree ready to display that tree with the with the rest of the elements in the display and so having that uh having that context for the people who are visiting because it's not always obvious uh just by looking at the display what the history of the tree or something like that is and i think that was really the driving force and you know big big shout out to ryan because (laughs) <laughs> we basically copied the format of the uh, the artisans cup uh program in order to uh, put that out and that was the feedback that i got in fact people wanted even more provenance oriented artist statements and so i think we're really going to encourage that for the next one to make sure that tell us your tree story and we might just leave it at that you know where did this come from what's special about it you know who's worked on it whatever it happens to be because that's it provides a great entry into understanding the tree for visitors, whether they're bonsai aficionados or simply friends of friends who showed up. Yeah. Aaron, Aaron Packard asked me if there was like a word limit and I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, we do have some printing constraints and then I think uh, the description of his ended up being two full pages, but (laughs) I think it needed it. it. You know, it's like, it was a very complicated, very unusual display. And so that's the kind of information that really helps people understand everything that went into it. Yeah. The fact that Aaron showed up with such an amazing display, I'm, I kind of still can't get over it is not many people roll up to a bonsai show from out of state unfurl. Uh, I forget, was it eight, 15 feet tall, 18 feet tall? How big was that thing? Uh, a huge I... hand cut piece of paper that was just beautiful from Tahiti person. And then the, uh, again, as you pointed out, the tree, the pot, the whole thing was just fantastic and it's just that's not a bad thing to pull out of the back of your car when you show up to a show yeah i don't think i can uh i mean it, i had to use a scissor lift to get to to hang the paper from the, <laughs> the 20 foot ceiling like no we didn't even have a, a 20 foot ladder on site because i was just like there's no way i'm getting on a 20 foot ladder i'm gonna have to go up and down <laughs> yeah, and up and yeah, down like yeah. you know we adjusted it like four or five times to make sure that the angle was right to make sure that the you know, because the bottom of the paper was solid and initially we had hung it so that the solid piece was right at table height, but then that was blocking the light for, mm. that was streaming in from the window from behind, particularly in the morning, that was, he had designed it so that the light would come through the cut paper, hit the, the reflective ripples in the glass bulb and kind of sparkle underneath the tree, almost like water, almost like, you know, a sunlight hitting uh, a water surface through like a bunch of leaves or something like that. And it, the amount of thought and effort that went into that was just incredible. And so that brings up another good point, which is every variance from the standard table on table display was a huge hit. Whether it was Naka's Birds, whether it was the Pacific Bonsai Museum, uh, the, the one we we're just talking about, Michael Hagedorn's awesome, awesome shore pine, or even the Ryan Neal, Randy Knight, uh, double large tree, single display. These were all the crowd favorites. In other words, hint, hint, doing something unusual is a 
is an easy way to please the please the crowd if it's done well. I have to yeah. say, I I don't know how many people other than Randy and Ryan could pull off a two tree, <laughs> sixteen foot long display that that takes some that takes some forklifts. Two enormous trees. <laughs> yeah, Wait, that was, that, I'm that, underestimating that... Andrew. yeah hold on but uh, no that was that was a really inspiring display to me that was that was one of my favorite displays of the whole exhibit the um the contrast between the two trees of kind of similar size and mass of different circumstances and um the the gravitas that that display had um that that display is one that i stood in front of for a while that was that was really special i i i appreciate that they did that i i wonder do you think the expo would feel better with more creative displays in the room or was it the fact that 90% of the displays or whatever were semi-traditional that having just a few gave us good relief? What do you think? I think there's room for more. I think there's room for more, but I don't think people need to be, people don't need to go home and think to themselves, Oh my God, what am I going to do? I need to come up with an unusual display. I think, I think that having it be, you know, 70% 70% traditional would be fine. And I think that it really is up to the individual exhibitors what they want to do, whether that's a little bit untraditional. Uh, like a friend of mine who used a, a, a director set as a stand uh, or, or very untraditional, like the ones we've been talking about. So, I mean, you can, you can kind of go different directions, but um, yeah, I, I agree with Jonas a little bit more in the, in terms of, um the non-traditional is what we were really looking for and it also depends on who's doing that work i mean (laughs) the curator of the pacific bonsai museum you know randy knight and uh ryan neal these are no small figures in the bonsai world these are like the cutting edge people that are making interesting things to the art form um they're gonna bring something special to it and they really did yeah yeah and speaking of that it was it was really cool to i mean i felt like we were at like a national bonsai conference or something like seeing the amount of of bonsai professionals in the room i mean i think everybody was there um it like i ran into dan robinson um who like i just like i didn't expect to be there i don't even know why it just didn't phase me i'm like oh wow dan came down to see this and then it was like oh there's dave DeGroo. And then, oh, every, there's Daisaku Nomoto. <laughs> and it was just like the whole community, um, the professional community really showed up. It was it was fun to see. I had some sort of thought when I first saw Dan, because when I first saw him, he was actually giving a docent tour. And I was like, wait, what? I didn't even know he was here. And yeah. I was like, wait, does he have like a teleporter or something? Like he just decided to pop in for an hour? Yeah. <laughs> And that's the kind of event it was. If Dan Robinson shows up and none of the organizers had any idea he'd be there and he was kind enough to give a docent tour on top of that, that just puts a smile on your face. I mean, that's just such a precious thing to have that. Yeah. Bill Valvanis driving, you know, 3,500 miles across the country to to show trees and show support. And switching his route halfway through so they came through Las Vegas. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, that's what I'm saying. What I was saying earlier, I just have no excuse. I absolutely have to go to the national <laughs> next year because yeah. if, if Bill's going to show up to my show, I need to show up to his. <laughs> yeah. It, it was just nice to see everybody there. All of our professional colleagues showed up. All of our 
clients and students showed up, it, it just felt like everybody was in the room. And that, that, that was really special to me too. Uh, yeah, I mean, it would be nice. You, you asked what, what I would do differently. It'd be nice to do more programs with, you know, it's so rare that all of our paths align and it, it would almost be nice to, to, I don't know what it would be, but to organize something with, with everybody. With um, more talks. More talks and maybe a big group talk or something. Um, I think that was something that, you know, we discussed uh, and it, what it really boiled down to was that there wasn't a slam dunk in terms of a seminar space in that building. So we had to plan, okay, we can put on a couple of talks here, but it's very possible that they'll get rained out. And so the amount of planning that could go into them was, it didn't feel quite as good as, as putting more effort into other aspects of the show. I think maybe Jonas can add to that. Yeah, it's exactly right. We had the great fortune of good weather all weekend, which, of course, the primary benefit being the trees. But beyond that, it allowed us to do a few programs outside, which was nice and make um, a little bit of use out of the uh, courtyard on the east side of the building. And so Sunday morning, our potters gave a panel where we had four of the potters who were selling their wares and are actually making the containers themselves uh, gave a talk for about an hour and a half answering all of the audience's questions. And that proved really popular, which was awesome. And then later in the afternoon, Eric and I answered any questions about the expo in which we shared stories kind of like what we're talking about right now. Yeah. So I think, I think more opportunities like that and, and maybe involving more people would be, be fun. I, I even thought maybe is, is the banquet a space for that? I, I'm not sure, but um, yeah, it could be. Maybe there's a different format where it actually starts out an hour or two earlier and we have larger panel discussions or we have, you know, meetings of whichever groups want to participate. That was one of the neat things about the Artisans Cup and that there yeah. were ample um, speaking engagements throughout the weekend where people could listen to all of the different teams that had contributed to the success of the event. I think going back to the Artisans Cup, maybe instead of having a dinner banquet, we could have a brunch banquet. Uh, like have the judging on Friday night, like we did before, yeah. or even earlier on Friday, if we managed to uh, plan for sort of a two and a half day show with a with a Friday night reception and then a Saturday morning awards brunch, and then uh, a, yeah. and then at that point the awards would be out for the majority of the weekend. Yeah, that that would be fun for for viewers to see, especially people who are only going to be there on Saturday or something like that. Um, I, I for those it's... who haven't seen it, I was going to say we actually have now uh, photos of the winners and a description of the scores and the judging process on the Pacific Bonsai Expo homepage. You can link to it. So for anyone that has missed it, we do have that info out in the public now. Yeah. And we should talk about the judging. Um, yeah, we've I talked about the... everything but the trees pretty much so far. Yeah. Um, before we talk about just judging, I just want to say like it was phenomenal to see you know every tree showed up ready for show, um, like it just everything looked really presentable. It looked like people put tremendous effort into pretty much all the trees on display. It like people really hit it out of the park. I've uh, never seen a show where it was that you know there was that much attention to detail to every single display. I have to say, I was also pleasantly surprised having seen the results of the jury. So, you know, we took submissions 
by photograph. We had never, I mean, we've seen some of the photos or some of the trees in person before, but uh, for, for selections for the show, the jury did it using just photographs and an online uh, process. And every tree that showed up looked better than it did in the photographs, which is, yeah. is I, that's just amazing. That was a huge sigh of relief because we weren't sure about a number of submissions. And when they showed up, it was just like, Oh, wow. Oh, like, wow. Like, yeah, when people were dropping. setting up, yeah, when people were setting up on what was it? Was it Thursday? Yeah. Like, it was, it was like, oh, shit. Like, this is, this is going to be a good show. Like, you could feel it just as people were wheeling trees in the door. Actually, that's um, right. We only had about, yeah, maybe the first 25, 30 trees were in Thursday. And we're, and we were giddy because we're like, oh, it, it, it worked. No, we are, we won. <laughs> it, it, yeah. We're fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're, we're okay. I think the thing that stuck in my, this kind of like, is a bunch of different topics all rolled into one but thursday greg mcdonald brings in his washington hawthorn that is like red on the outside like bright red orange on the outside and yellow in the middle and i'm just like who lit that tree on fire like holy, you could not nail that more. holy cow did he nail the, the fall foliage and then he sits it down on the staging table so we in the east end of the building, we had all these staging tables. And in the east end of the building, there's like kind of south-facing floor-to-ceiling windows, just like in the rest of the building, they're just at the kind of near the ceiling, so way up high on the on the wall. And he sits this on the staging table, waiting for it to get photographed. And I'm looking at it like, wait, can we just move part of the display over here? And you don't need a backdrop. You're just going to have this sitting in front of this this window and it's going to be backlit the entire weekend because that thing looks freaking amazing right there uh like that those are the kinds of reactions that on thursday that i was having i was just like oh so amazing yeah yeah it was pretty pretty lit that was fun um and yeah we were, the judge yeah, we had just enough just enough fall color you know eric was adamant about having the show when we did because we wanted to get some color and we kind of got just what we wanted, which were a small number of highlights. There were a couple red trees. There was the yellow orange tree. There were some trees with just a handful of leaves hanging on. It was just such a nice mix that just give you enough of a reminder in each aisle of what time of year it was. It, it's almost like having a winter show where you have the option to have fall color. I like, like yep. I was just going to say that. You know what I mean? Like, so, I mean, I had a, a Chinese elm in the, in the exhibit, medium-sized Chinese elm. And the leaves were still green. And so I just pulled all the leaves off and now it's, it's dormant. So there was no, there was no color, but you get to, you get to just say, okay, it's winter. You pull all the leaves off and then you get to enjoy the twigs. Whereas if it had actually had some color, it would have left the leaves on like Greg did. It's a, it's a really good time for a show, I think. Yeah, if you have deciduous trees, that option being on the West Coast is really nice. Uh, I know a lot of trees coming from Portland didn't have the fall color. It was like just past it. So it was it was really nice to get a little bit of a mix in the room and um, have the option to say, oh, well, I can defoliate this and it's not, you know, September. I won't feel bad about <laughs> doing it too soon. Like if I do it, it's the right time. So it, it just the timing felt great. Yeah, so. it, it really was. I've got a Japanese maple in the garden. Um, just today, I actually took a picture of it. It's probably at peak fall color right now. So, you know, it's just one week off, but so many of the other maples were better last week. And so, yeah, actually, and then we're lucky in uh, Northern California, at least in 
where I live, we have more fall color this year than in any other year in the last 10 years. Um, two years wow. ago is good, but this is the best fall color I've seen. Not sure what was different about the weather this year, but really enjoying seeing all the color and boy, did it help with the show. At least in San Francisco, we apparently had the second coldest October on record in the last hundred years, which is, wow. that which is, helped. I mean, yeah, October is usually a pretty warm uh, month in San Francisco. So I had more fall foliage, uh, particularly on a Zelkova forest that oh, I've that looked on. great. Oh, it was amazing. It was, I, and I do not get fall color. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so how did you feel about the judging? Circling back to that, um, we were, the the three of us were exhibitors and judges, and and the three format, of us contributed to how we developed the scoring rubric as well. Yeah. Um, it felt really good to me. I know like a few of our concerns, we were worried, you know, is two hours enough to judge the 70 trees? We were worried, you know, is one to five enough numbers? Uh, we were, we had all these concerns and after going through it, it, it felt, felt good. What do you think? The process and the rudiments were, they felt great. My sole takeaway is I want to increase awareness about what can go into judging. In other words, I think there's a lot more we can teach about bonsai evaluation to inform future events. But the process and rubric we set up, I'm actually really happy with. I think it really benefited from having essentially 41 judges, was it? Uh, and even 40. Okay, yeah. even 40, yeah. So, you know, when you when you set up a system and you have that many inputs, I think it it really allows, and each one of those 40 people has a significant background in understanding bonsai. Uh, maybe not the same backgrounds. There's obviously a lot of variation, but um, they have an appreciation of the art. They have a deep appreciation of the art and and how it works, how difficult certain things are and and whatnot. And that that feeds into um, their understanding and how they how they scored the trees. So. Yeah, and I think having that many judges, you know, if, if people were slightly biased towards their own trees, or if you have someone like me who might be more biased towards deciduous trees or something like that, having that many judges seemed to really even out all those those biases. Now, I want to ask Jonas here. Um, I So I think I finally figured out how Z-scoring helps because you you told me or actually the the numbers are all published on the on the site now and you can look you can look at them yourself if you want to kind of follow along but the the number one display if you hadn't taken the z scoring into effect somebody oh wait no that that's not what it was it was if we hadn't separated best in show right. from the rest of the judging then guess who would have won i i called it yeah, it was uh, it was the uh, it was a Shohin display. It was yeah, the highest. Sure. It received the highest scores, and we guessed yeah, I, that months ago. Months ago, yeah, we knew that. Yeah, yeah. The three of us were in your backyard, Jonas, and we said, "Oh crap, this might happen if 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 this figures out." And, but that wasn't. We, it, it, it wasn't that, like our intention. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it's I, well, the thing I liked about the judging is you had the more technical analytical component of you know, assign a score one to five for each tree. So you have all this raw technical data. And then for the best in show, okay, it was a more emotional, um, intuitive kind of 
um, thing. Okay, you've you've gone through, you've judged all these trees. Now, what feels right for the top prize? And I like the the counterpoint between those those two different ways of of picking picking the award. Yeah, we had a left brain question and a right brain question, and we can all thank Dan Yamins for suggesting that approach. I think it's it's really interesting to think about it because Jonas, you said this to me the other day, which is, in a way, the result is is very it's predicated on what is the question you're asking like are you asking people you know does this tree score one through five or are you asking which tree is your favorite those are totally different questions and when we did test runs on the scoring we saw some really interesting things that i think we talked about before like the trees that were scored later in a given uh, in a given judge's slate scored higher. Was that what yeah. it was, Jonas? So That's like exactly right. The judges became more generous as they went through the slate of trees. Um, and, and I think we never really, we didn't come up with a mode for correcting for that. So that just sort of averages out in the- Oh, we, we did come up with a mode of correcting that one and that we had yeah. people start at their own tree. And so we had people- <laughs> We had people starting yeah. on every single row of the show so that we'd be kind of um, dissipating that bias across the entire exhibit. We let them do it in whatever order they wanted, but watching people score the show, they actually all started in different places and they all went about it differently. And what seemed to be a very common approach was people would go through roughly in order most of the show, but then when it came time to pick the among the contenders who was going to get which scores, that involved a lot more back and forth. There were, I like looking at photos and just remembering, there were a lot of people concentrating really hard for, like, for yes. like an hour. Like the yeah. exhibitors were like, they had a clipboard in their hands. They're like standing there looking at each tree, bending over, looking at the trunk if they can't see it, you know, because of the foliage or whatever. And, and it, it's just kind of funny to think back on it and to look at the photos because th they were really giving it a really good effort. And a lot of people had never scored trees before. And so it was just a brand new experience for some people or others. Some of the professionals in the room had done this kind of exercise a lot. And I saw a lot of them put in great effort too. I mean, Jonas and I have done it. We did it monthly for 10 years almost. Uh, so it was a little bit, it was a little bit more familiar for us, but it was interesting to watch the other folks walking around with those clipboards. It also never yeah. felt like we had this much pressure either, because even when we did this at our annual exhibits with Bale and Bonsai, um, you know, Boone's really the one that um, exposed us to this approach when we had uh, members' choice awards and all members of the club could vote. We wanted to refine that to just the people with skin in the game, the exhibitors. And we're thinking probably differently than a lot of the other exhibitors in the room, because Eric and I are thinking, what show, what tree do we think represents this whole exhibit? How do we want, you know, what trees are we going to be kind of, do we want to represent this event? Because this is best foot forward situation where we get to see which trees will be kind of speaking on our behalf for future events. Yeah, I, I think the system of the exhibitors scoring was, I don't know, it feels it feels accurate. It feels like um, rather than just bring in a judge who might have an obvious bias, it feels like this is the results that the community, the, the practicing community can, um, 
kind of put forward. And so it, it felt really representative of where, where a lot of the, the people were at. Good. And I know it, uh, it intimidated a lot of the newer exhibitors. And so it's given them, put the fire under their feet to start to learn a little bit more about how they might learn more about bonsai evaluation, which is but, great. And that's, and that's the brilliant thing about the expo is that it's pushing the quality forward, not just because we're showing you the best exhibit that's ever been done in the United States bonsai community, but we're also teaching you how to, to look at it. Um, I thought it was brilliant that in the program you had a scoring sheet where, you know, I told several of my students who were at the show, go look, you know, open to that page and go, go around and score it. Uh, because that's, it's teaching you how to, to look at things in a different way. I, I, I tell my students, um, you know, bonsai is a lot like wine. Uh, if you want to develop your taste at it, you have to drink, drink it and drink a lot of it and taste a lot of it. And um, if you're not actively practicing that, that process, like all the exhibitors got to do, um, you're not moving forward as quickly as you could. I don't know whose brainwave it was to have the, the scoring sheet in the program, whether that was Jonas or me or both of us, but uh, I think it was you and I was a hundred percent with it. We're just like, yes, this will happen. Yeah. yeah. That, that it almost brilliant. got, it almost got booted out. And I was like, no, that, that needs no, to go we back need in. that. Yeah. yeah that, that was and necessary. We yeah. have budget for that. Like we're going to encourage that because we really want to start focusing people on, evaluation otherwise if we're not evaluating trees then there's no reason why some trees should or shouldn't go into the show there's no reason why all trees wouldn't be the same price and so this helps get gives people kind of the tools to start thinking about that yeah yeah it was it seemed like everything really worked it seemed like yeah we can still teach people how to to maybe better evaluate trees you can see that in, in maybe the numbers of some of the the results but um it felt like you could copy and paste the system and use it for 2024. Yeah, that's the current plan that there are maybe some subtle refinements that we've been thinking about, but no, I can't think of any wholesale changes to make. So Jonas, what percentage of all of the work that we put into this do you think is kind of plug and play for the next show versus things that <laughs> things that have to be completely scrapped and redone? That's an excellent question because a lot of the benefits of having done this will only be benefits if we take the time to actually put things we know to do in action at the right time. For instance, I spent the first two or three hours of the score tabulations doing a bunch of setup work that I could have done ahead of time. Yeah, it would have been nice if I'd finished before 1.30 in the morning or whenever it was we finished, but will we give ourselves time to do these jobs ahead of time? Like we know what to do. We know how to make it easier, but I mean, I'd hope half of the work would disappear. I just know that so much of it is busy work because it's going to be names next time too, just a different set of names. But I know that Eric and I are adamant about doing one thing differently for the next show, and that is getting more help. <laughs> yeah you had what two 200 volunteers and, and we still needed more well I we, think so the bigger question is what led up to it because we pretty much i mean i feel like i took a year off to put on this show like i just did not travel this year i did not teach this year and i definitely didn't work on my trees this year and that's not that big an exaggeration and it'd be nice to not have to give up all three of those things again. And so we're going to need more help throughout the process. We had a couple of committees that didn't 
did just saved our butts actually and did an amazing job getting people in the door, all of the design help we had with things, let alone the fabrication of items. Um, we just need to continue to find ways to get more people to participate up front to make it less onerous going into it. Yeah, I think we, you know, one of the easy things that we're looking to offload is just basically admin work. Like there's so many times that we're just responding to emails uh, uh, when we should be thinking about design or thinking about scoring or things like that. And it's important to be in communication with the people that are coming, but at the same time, maybe it doesn't have to be just me and Jonas doing it. (laughs) It, it doesn't have to be just you two. Although as, as someone who is a vendor and an exhibitor coming from far away, uh, anytime I had a problem, you guys were always like hundred percent fantastic. Like it felt really good from the outside end working with you guys. Um, and that was typical, actually, the questions that you asked along the way, whether they came by text, phone call, or email, we were getting those exact same kinds of questions from most of the people who participated and every time that we got a question that seemed applicable, we'd throw it up on the FAQ. So the fact that, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we just won't have to do again. And I think we're both thrilled about that. We have a functioning website. We're not going to be doing software investigations like we were doing. Yeah, our you legal, have a logo. You have. Oh, yeah, we've etched our legal agreements in stone. And so we'll have them in place for the next time. Yeah. Uh, there's just a lot of kind of infrastructure bits to this that we have in place. Cause what's funny is when we would, so there were a few phases, maybe what two months out where Eric and I would talk one to four hours a day on the phone, no exaggeration. And it would just be off the top of our head. Oh yeah, we got to do this. Oh yeah, we got to do that. Oh yeah. How are we going to do that? And having worked through it and taken as many notes as we did, we have some really good starting points to build on that for the future. Plus we, you know, we weren't using, initially we weren't using any sort of centralized system for tracking all the various bits. And we finally yeah. kind of accidentally landed <laughs> on a, a project management software, a web-based project management software that, that really helped us keep track of things, kind of like putting sticky notes on a, on a giant wall. Um, yeah, I think the entire show was pretty much run from one Google spreadsheet and one Trello board. Well, actually, no, actually we used all 10 Trello boards, but yeah, those are the two tools that pretty much made, (laughs) they were the informal sponsors of this whole thing. Yeah. You know, I think what you did with this show is you you proved how successful it is and how successful future ones are going to be. And I I think what you're going to get for the next one is a lot of people saying, hey, that that was important to me. How, How can I help? How can I be on a committee ahead of time. How can I step up and, and make this happen again? You, you could feel that in the room and, and feel that after the show. All right, Andrew, I'm going to hit you with a big question here. Are you ready? Oh boy. All right. So if you're, if you're, if you've just acquired the Pacific Bonsai Expo, you're the new CEO. Uh, yep. What are your, what are your instructions for your two employees that are on this call to uh, like, you're going to, you're going to tell us where this is going to be, when it's going to be and and what we need to change. Go. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a testament to how good the show was that maybe the hospitality of like just food was was one of the weaker points. Like it like just having some food trucks there for lunch would have been great rather than having to leave or get Uber Eats. Um, getting a nicer banquet, uh, although the banquet was really fun, um, just having like a nicer venue for the banquet um, to kind of match the quality of the exhibition would be great. So if that, if my biggest points are that we can maybe up the hospitality a little bit, 
<laughs> then it was a freaking amazing weekend. Uh, so that's the biggest thing. I think we can just give people a little bit more experience. Like we talked about maybe having more programming. Um, I, I think, I think a three day show would be what I would push for um, getting more people to see it. Maybe non bonsai people, people from the community in the, the Bay area would be, would be fun to invite more, more, more people to get on board. I have um, to say, I actually don't know like what percentage of the people that were there were non bonsai people or like, you know, because there's non-bonsai people who are like Jonas's friend yeah. or like, you know, my cousin yeah. or something like that. And it's like, they're there in a way to support you. But like how many novel visitors that we get that were like, oh, there's a bonsai show this weekend. Let's go check that out. Uh, like, I really don't know how many people there were. It was a small number. Yeah. I don't know the number either, but it was a surprisingly small number. Yeah. And, and that was one of the cool things about the Artisans Cup was that you had a lot of people from the outside bonsai oh, community awesome. in portland come in and like to the fact that i would hear people years later saying oh yeah there was that bonsai show that we went to and it was really cool um so to be able to open it up not just to the community uh, the bonsai community but the greater community i think would be a way to to make it kind of fun um i actually i don't know the, i've been thinking about it a lot and i think i would maybe keep the same venue um if, if we could add food trucks, if we could change things around a little bit, because the magic of that space, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm, a, I'm really afraid of losing it going somewhere else. So when you talk about the magic, how much of that magic would have been there if it were cloudy all weekend, let alone rainy? I still think, actually, rainy could have been a really interesting mood. Um, but I don't know. I, I like the fact that there was nothing else in that building but bonsai. Like that whole building was dedicated to that show rather than just be like a third of a convention center or a third of another building. Um, I, I liked that feeling of it. Um, I like the intimacy of the space, even though that has challenges for, for doing programming or more hospitality or things like that. Um, I, I don't know. I, I feel like that's going to be a tough conversation. And again, I don't know how it was to work with the venue because that could lead to an entirely different result. But um, the staff that we encountered when we were there were, were really fantastic. Um, so I don't know that I, I think the time of year we nailed, I think it would be nice if we could talk about, okay, this show was the best one we've ever had. How do we now make it better? How can, how can we like increase five or 10%? and the quality of the trees um, and, and just every little ounce. Um, yeah. That's the one piece of the show that'll be just as much work next time, if not more work, which is all of the communications that were required this year to encourage people to participate in this new thing that had never happened before. Now, at least we'll be able to convey to people, Oh, this is the thing that's happening now. How about submitting tree X or Y, or what's your suggestion? That's going to be a lot. I also want to work even with more people to work on their displays ahead of time. A lot of people uh, approached either Eric or me just in the last week before the show. Oh, what do you think of this accent plant? Or do you think you have a better stand than that? I want to be able to you know, work with a lot more people or encourage them to find whoever they typically work with to nail down some of that a little earlier because there are some awesome opportunities for improvements when it comes to just the nuts and bolts of the displays the accents the ten. you know what the, the we pieces. could even do uh, us all being colleagues and everybody in the room and 
having us us having a lot of students show up with trees is i'm sure we could just say hey we pacific bonsai expo let's all here's a group of professionals that will help you with your display here's a you know standard rate and you know here's someone in oregon and washington and 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 bay area and la um it could be, be cool yeah. to have like a resources page like that well, it'd be fun to just rent a building for a day and have people bring trees and or questions to it. And we can talk yeah. accents and displays and stands and all of that stuff. Yeah. Uh-oh, this is starting to sound like a bonsai club. <laughs> I know, we're <laughs> never that far away, are we? Well, in a way you need it because, the again, those 200 volunteers to, to, to make it happen just for that weekend alone, not counting the committees beforehand. Like it, it does take an army to make this happen. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and it's. Uh, I want to. I want to broach like I, Andrew. I was actually expecting a completely different answer to that question, but uh, so like I'm going to approach this from a different perspective, and that is like, how many people like? So you talk about the venue being like really important and falling in love with the venue, but yeah. I just kind of wonder from my perspective, like, was the venue kind of like just aching to be a bonsai show, and so it feels like it feels like a really safe place in order to display your tree like in other words you're going to walk in there's going to be like a really clean table with a nice table covering on it and you love the purple backdrops and all that stuff and this all this sort of feels like warm and fuzzy to you but what if like the challenge instead was like wait i want to make a really interesting bonsai display that's like a little bit like makes me a little bit nervous or like it makes me a little bit like excited but i'm not sure like challenge yeah, like, like, how do we, like, in our Sunday talk, Jonas and I talked a little bit about this, and I brought up a couple of different ideas, and I just th kind of thought to myself, like, is the excitement that goes into, like, a first show like this, where you've never seen the venue before, some of the excitement is just like, hey, wait, I don't know what my tree is going to look like in this, in this room, and yeah. you have to kind of have a little bit of, of faith that you're going to show yeah. up, and you're going to actually like it. So like, what if that challenge was a little bit more challenging? Like, what, what if it was like, okay, I- What if the, like, what you're saying is, what if the expo was more of this idea or concept, and then it 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 was like a pop-up show that happened, you know, at a different space next time and a different one? Was that kind of where you're going with it? Well, we didn't know it was going to work ahead of time. And so we were on our toes, right. which made us think through a lot of stuff we wouldn't have otherwise. And so if we were coming up with a new mode or approach to display every single time, that's going to keep everyone on the edge of their seat. Oh, how's this going to work? Is this going to work? Maybe it doesn't work. Yeah, that's that's tough. I mean, you have something like the Kokofu, which happens at the same time, at the same place uh, every year. And um people just get used to going to that event. Um, they, they, they know they're going to go to the what, Art, Tokyo Art Museum every second weekend in February or whatever it is. Uh, and so it's just like this expectation that's built on their schedules. That's not exciting, but it does get a lot of people to, to come to the actual event. Um, so it's a hard, hard thing to balance. So we want to be edgy and always find new spaces that you know, have a lot more vulnerability and risk, or do we want to, I mean, do we, do we just need that, like, like a, a regular occurring event in the same space? Like if, to me, it kind of feels like we need that first before we can do crazy pop-up-y thing. But, um, or do we just change the definition of space? What if we provide that space every two years, just the address happens to change? Yeah. Cause we will, that's cause so 
And I don't know, part of this might be the fact that it's two of us together kind of orchestrating everything where we feel that it's a huge hedge against blind spots. And it's a great way to double check opportunities for chaos or collapse. And mm -hmm. it, it, there's, there is something fun about, is that going to work? Uh, I don't know. Let's just, let's, let's pretend it might. How might that play out? Because that's kind of how this event came together. It's not like we have backgrounds in massive event planning. I think, <laughs> I, I think safe, um, I think safe deadens excitement in a, in a way. And when you, when you do something that's new, when you do something that's a little bit edgier, then, then people that like little bit of uncertainty that is introduced kind of gets people like, wait, I'm not sure what's going to happen. And that increases the level of engagement for people. So, I mean, what I said in, in our talk on Sunday, and I was, I think still on 97% kidding is that I was going to hire the crane operators across the street to arrange a bunch of those shipping containers into like different spaces. And then we were just going to park the trees in the middle of all these colorful shipping containers with black <laughs> asphalt as the flooring. And, you know, I like, I'm, I really am kidding. Like I'm almost a hundred percent sure that we're not going to do that, <laughs> but, but that's what I'm talking about. I mean, you have yeah. to, yeah. when you talk about non-traditional display, when you talk about, you know, uh, when you talk about like really pushing bonsai and pushing, you know, the bonsai artists forward and saying like, well, what if you display your tree in this space? Like, what yeah. is, how does that make you feel? You know, I think the bridge art is a different space than what we've seen for bonsai shows before. So what does it look like if we, if we find an entirely different space with an entirely different feeling to it? Yeah. It's, it's an important conversation to have. I think, I think my other argument would be what about the, you know, two or three times the people that didn't come to this expo that are definitely going to come to the next one. And we'll still have that first sensational experience with that space. Um, you know, how many new exhibitors are going to feel that because they, they've, they had the FOMO, how many, how many travelers will, will do that? How many vendors are now going to want to show up and feel the magic of that space? It's, it's a tough question. It's, well, it's, and I get your perspective really well. I think, we are so bereft of events like this in the bonsai community that we could change absolutely nothing at all. And the challenge would be, how do we just do what we did better and better and better and better? And I think yeah. that would be 100% fine. It doesn't- and probably it, necessary too. Well, yeah, we uh, there's room for that. And so on top of that, is there another itch we want to address that is always striving for something interesting for something a little more on the edge keeping us all on our toes and maybe it's multiple events maybe this is yeah. a traveling one we we're really happy with how this last one turned out and even though we know that we could do it again and it would be very satisfied with the results you notice how we're both already talking about well what else could we do differently where else might we have that and how else might yeah. that work that's either our curious minds or just a failure to appreciate how important it is to give someone an event to rally around at a certain time of year in a certain place. Yeah. And I think it's tough to us three being bullseye professionals who do a lot of work in the traditional realm. We're always kind of like, well, what, what can we do that is maybe out of the box, but for so many people, 99% of people are striving to just figure out what that tradition is. And so having, 80% of the displays in the show look like that, having the show be consistent. We're balancing that with, oh, I saw that show. I don't need to go to that show next year. 
Yeah. I saw that venue. I saw that backdrop. Yeah, it's great. It's fine. Yeah, I don't need to go next year, maybe in another couple of years. Whereas if you do something different, then it's like, oh, oh, I'm going to have to see that. Yeah, you almost need both. I think we need both. We need the, like, we don't have consistency on the West Coast. You have it on the East Coast with the U.S. National Show, but we don't have that consistency on the West Coast. So maybe that's why I'm so, like, hungry for it. Uh, and and unwilling to, to to change because it's like we need we need like that consistency like that's going to be a huge stimulus for the community, but then yeah I, I'm I'm an artist too and it's like yeah what can we do that's completely different and left field out of the box. I think for those people who are listening and kind of wondering you know a little bit about where I'm coming from at least, um, go just try to find a Ikebana show that is largely populated by Sugetsu uh, displays and walk around and look at your, like take your concept of what a flower arrangement is and then look at, look at what these people in Sugetsu are doing and just kind of think, what if we did that with bonsai? Because that's kind of, it's not the only thing, but it's one of the things that got me going in this direction and thinking about it this way. Because if you can take a traditional Japanese art like Ikebana and do what Sugetsu is doing, why can't we do that in bonsai? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting because I'm not sure we, I agree, but I'm not sure we need to. Like you could take any, like, like let's just grab someone from downtown Oakland and bring them into that show they're going to look at the most traditional displays and shit their pants. Like they're going to like to be totally blown away at that traditional format because, Oh my gosh, that's a bonsai. I didn't know it was that big. Wow. Look at the colors. Like, Phil. What if we had a, what if we had the expo exactly like we did this year, but we had a secret door to where we had a bunch of super alternative displays. That would be cool. It's the, uh, it's the, it's the exit from the freeway in a Haruki Murakami novel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Enter an alternate universe. Yeah. Cause, cause you know, we might, we might be able to find a wacky billionaire who can make that happen. Have it's, any of you started to think questions. about what trees you're going to show in two years? Definitely. Oh, you have? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have, I have 2024 and 2026 planned out. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I mean, for for me and so many of my clients, you know, we've been striving to, you know, we're getting these nice trees, we're getting them ready for show, just to have that endpoint where we can finally celebrate that process has has been kind of thrilling. This is like this was the, my first major show that I, I I put something in since being a bonsai professional. Um, and so it was, it was a bit of a coming out party for me. I know it was the same for Matt real. It kind of felt like that for Peter T in a way too. Again, that, that maybe just drives the consistency argument, but I'm, I'm looking at my garden. I'm saying, you know, this tree wasn't ready for this one, but it's going to be ready in two years. And this one's going to be ready in four years. You know, I want that space where I can plug that tree into the expo formula. How do you think we can start encouraging people to think about tree prep on a two-year schedule? I mean, that's almost its own whole topic, but I remember every time I went home from a bale and bonsai show, like that week, I pretty much would try to solidify what I was going to show the next year. Because one year really just gives you finishing touches. It's more of a two to three year process in a lot of cases to get a tree really where you want it. Yeah, I think um, I I like the two year gap actually for that. I think that 
you know, I, I texted, I think either Eric or yes, maybe both of both you of after the show. And I was like, let's do this again next year. <laughs> um, because, you know, I'm just on this bonsai quality exhibit high. And um, I don't think the regular exhibitor feels that way. Um, because it is a lot of time to take off from work. It's a lot of expense to, to travel if you're from out of town, all of those things. But I like, I like the two-year increment because, um, you know, I could, like, I, I got home from the expo. The first thing I did was work on a tree that I was going to put in, hopefully submit to the next one. And I was like, you know, if I cut this back now, then it can regrow and then I get two growing seasons to get good twigs on this. And I can have, you know, now make a pot for it and I can get it in next year. So it's not freshly potted for the, sh and it was just nice to be able to take a longer path to plan some of those things out and, and to talk about it with students too, who are like, Hey, Christian, you just, you know, you know, this tree is really coming along nicely. Let's, you know, let's think about this for, for two years from now. Here's, here's a list of things that we need to accomplish and, and have the time to, to do that. And so much time to pick that right stand. You mentioned the container to look at how to display it. Yep. And you'll have opportunities to display it at different times of the year and try different things. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunities when you start playing See, it out over a longer period of time. Andrew, I have I have a, a reason. The primary reason that I would agree to, agree to do this every year, which is a ridiculous reason, is that I only ever seem to do woodworking and create stands in the month preceding a major show. <laughs> yeah. And, and I you mean, did a it's... lot this year. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun to see a lot of people do that too. Scott, Scott Elser made the stand for his mountain hemlock, I think two or three weeks before the exhibit. Um, it was like the, 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 the creativity that the expo stimulated in the community, I thought was, was really great. You know, this, we get a stronger bonsai community when we have a lot of professionals um, thriving and teaching and sharing and um, having a big show like this every year or every two years um, creates a model for people are like, Oh, maybe I need help with my accent. Who can I go hire and, and, and help me with that? Um, oh, I need a stand. Um, you know, what's, what's Austin or David Niddle doing? Um, oh, uh, this pod isn't great. Um, let me go talk to now or Vicky. Um, it really, the, the show really builds the community and the, just like the, the, the community built the show. And that's kind of where our focus is now for the next two years is we're actually looking to settle on the venue and the format of the show in pretty short order, because that'll help us know what stuff we will or won't need to be worrying about a year from now. Yeah. I called, I think I woke up on Tuesday after my 16 hours worth of sleep and uh, called Jonas and said, you know, I think we really need to figure out what venue we're going to be using pretty much immediately yeah, because yeah. if it's not going to be the bridge yard, that means that that's that, a big process. It just cascades yeah. into so many other decisions. And yeah. you know, so it's, it's almost like we started with the venue decision the first time and yeah. moving forward into 2024, it's the same thing. We have to start with the venue decision, either committing again to using the bridge yard or, or going and touring in another bunch of venues and committing to one of those uh, yeah. to, to be the venue because there's uh, from a, from a planning perspective, the venue is just everything. Yeah. 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 We we actually would love to have a venue a hundred percent settled, you know, within the next six months. I'm glad you yeah. didn't say month. Yeah. <laughs> I know we want it sooner yeah. than that, but uh, we're also yeah. going into repotting season and fall yeah. uh, work and, there's a lot to go, but uh, 
but we're literally we've had a lot of discussions about this and we're going to keep having them and and we actually already have quotes for different venues and ideas of how we might frame things and so that's that's all happening right now we haven't I mean, even done our final accounting yet for this show and we're like but what about the next one yeah yeah you guys need to figure out uh that stuff first um i mean what if what if we had a fairly traditional expo that was consistent in the same space every two years. And then maybe in the off year, having like a small 20, 30 tree show that was maybe few vendors, more an art exhibit than a show a boutique. for a boutique expo that was more creative out of the box, much lower budget, much maybe more, not more casual, but you know, kind of a different feeling, you know, that might be, be an interesting way to look at the off year so that you have the consistency of the the, the fun stuff while throwing in the the random i i edgy. i don't think that would work i think that the better way to make that work would be to have those two things combined have because you don't want to ask people to travel uh, as you split yeah, it into yeah. two different events then yeah. you're saying to people like, well, you either come to this one or you come to that one. So I think that the better answer to what you're talking about is to have a venue that allows for a little bit of both, potentially find a venue that does it a little bit more, like has different spaces that allow for uh, different kind of looks or feelings. Like it was pretty looking, you say, okay, there's actually in this event venue there's actually two different um, types of feelings that we have in the same venue uh, i think that would that would be a better way yeah um i i wonder you know one of the things that you had talked about was um was maybe having the entire room be the exhibit and then maybe renting a huge tent or something for the vendors um and so what if, what if, you know, the one half of the room was traditional displays, the other half of the room was um, these out of the box avant-garde displays, kind of more spaced out, more kind of maybe there were rooms or something that you could create. And then you were able to create a temporary space outside, you know, as a vendor, I'm not sure I would like that, but that might make <laughs> for a more interesting exhibit in that space. Yeah. If it were a dry weekend, that'd be fantastic. And then that just eats into our parking. And so it would be pretty much a, a non-drive event at that point. But we do have the square footage in the parking lot outside the building. Or, yeah, I mean, if they're with a few changes, it could be in the courtyard or we could figure out other uh -huh. solutions. But but yeah, Andrew, I think you're you're thinking along the right lines there. Because one of, you know, Jonas's, uh, when we were talking about the, the sort of big layout of the of the room simplicity for the first show but two it had to do with security and attendance and all of these sorts of things but there's so many other ways that this show could be presented and and, and broken up into like a more traditional show versus a a little bit more avant-garde show um and i think that these things are just things that we need to explore and discuss i i think it's such a major win for for this show that the focus is on the next one and maybe even two after that. I I think the the way that you guys approach this as opposed to other shows uh, from a more sustainable mindset, okay, how can we hopefully break even? Uh, how can we um, 
build a team of volunteers to do this again? How can we get exhibitors excited to put their trees in the space? How can we make the experience good for them? How can we make the visitors want to come and see another one? I, I think you guys approached it with a really sustainable mindset and that it, you can, you can feel like everybody's, everybody's excited for the next one already. Well, that's awesome. Cause we're pretty excited already. <laughs> yeah. yeah when, the, when the next thing that like you, you get up three over and you're like, okay, how, where do we start? And like, instead of going back to like working on my trees, I'm thinking about like the next venue. That's pretty, pretty crazy. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a good feeling. It's this you could tell this was really kind of needed in the community, and uh, I think I think we're gonna get. I think it's just by copying and pasting and doing the next one. I think we're we're already gonna get more people, more exhibitors, more quality in, in the room. It's I don't know because that's think, the ultimate goal. Is apart from yeah. pushing the display forward, we want to see more quality trees. We want more people to appreciate quality trees, and we want to just see, you know, what's how how compelling can we make the display of bonsai? Yeah, and it's I mean it's great if you weren't able to to be there. There's going to be another one, but you know you can also go and buy the book, and and that helps fund the next show. In addition to the the origami. Uh, birds that that were in Eric's display, so it's it's nice that people have a way to already start plugging in for the next one. And I have to say, looking like taking all of my trees to the photography booth, the uh, the book is going to look really damn good. Um, like working with a photographer, seeing what it looked like on his screen, it I'm really excited about the book. Yeah, and we we actually I think just today we got the some of the sample layouts from uh, Bob King, who's doing. Uh, most of the most of the page layout work so we're already we're already well into the production uh phase of this whole thing and i don't think i mean i guess i i'm guessing but it feels like it might be done by the end of january or so yeah we uh there's going to be the the biggest variable is going to be kind of picking the fun action shots that were shot over the course of the weekend where we just give people an idea of what the look in the feel of the room was and illustrating that aspect of the event but the nuts and bolts of the book are pretty much there you know we've picked out the the paper the cover material the uh the displays the metadata most of that is mostly done and so it's a matter of plugging it all together um reviewing it all and then uh just kind of making sure that it's the uh that it kind of conveys what it was like to be there over the weekend yeah, that's that's fun, and you know, I I, I got two copies because I, I don't know. I, was just like, I want one that I'm not going to open just because I think it's going to be. If we keep doing this, it's going to be special to have the first one. But you know, I was just sitting here thinking for everybody who's getting a book. Um, a lot of clubs have libraries too, and so to making sure that the clubs get a hold of this, um, it was it was it was great to see so many clubs sponsor this show. That that added to the community effort, but. Um, yeah, get the book. The book's going to be really nice. I'm excited about the book. And yeah, that was it's, a good point about the donors and the sponsors because that they were played a huge role in making sure that this happened as well as it did. Yeah, and any, anything else you're thinking yeah. about for the next one? I'm mostly focused on getting that tree quality there and settling the venue. Those are kind of the, the initial steps. And right now, actually, honestly, the focus really is on tidying up everything from this show, picking the the venue, and then back of my head, 
okay, let's start talking to people. Hey, you're going to submit this time. You're going to submit next time. What does that tree need? Let's let's start thinking along those lines. I think we both uh, would like to see slightly larger venue or slightly larger, sorry, uh, vendor area that yeah. we had to turn away under yeah. and then doesn't do anybody any good. And it was really just yeah. a space constraint. Yeah, well, that's that's so exciting. Um, thank you so much, Eric and Jonas, for, for putting this on. I know uh, so many volunteers made it happen. The exhibitors made it happen. The vendors made it happen. The event staff made it happen. The sponsors made it happen. But you two gave up a year or more of your lives to, to do this. So I think everybody in the, the bonsai community really, really thanks you and appreciates you for that. So thanks for thanks for doing your part, bringing in such great trees and such uh, happy feelings all weekend. It was awesome. Yeah, I I really appreciate everybody out there, you know, taking the time to bring that room that made it special. It was everybody contributing and uh, we were called organizers because we were organizing (laughs) and we weren't we weren't like the owners of the show because because there's so many different uh, aspects of it that have to come together. So thanks. Thanks to Andrew. And thanks to everybody who, who participated. Here, here. Great. Well, uh, that wraps up this week's episode of the Bonsai Wire podcast. If you want to promote a uh, future Portland uh, Pacific Bonsai Expos, check out the uh, Pacific Bonsai Expo website. You can get a copy of the book. You can donate uh, via getting an origami bird and, uh, We'll look forward to hearing about what you guys have in store for two years from now. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers. The music on today's podcast was brought to you by the fine folks at Blue Dot Sessions. Check them out at www.sessions.blue.